You will see what this is in just a moment. I have here poison and poison. And now in this cup I have no poison, is that right? No, that's not right. I've got twice as much poison as I had before, don't I? I can prove it. It's still in there, see? When you add poison to poison, what do you have? Twice as much poison. When you add wrong to wrong, what do you have? Two wrongs. When you add sin to sin, what do you have? Two sins. And crime plus crime equals two crimes. All of that is, of course, absolutely axiomatic. It happens to be a fact. It is irrefutable, irrevocable. No one can change it. It happens to be true. If you want a title for what I want to talk to you about today, it is A Time to Sigh. And I will turn to Ezekiel, the ninth chapter, to illustrate that point. Here, God is sending the equivalent of a death angel, but a modern death angel in the prophecy of the book of Ezekiel, who is told to go into the city with a destroying weapon in his hand and to destroy utterly everyone that does not have a particular mark upon his forehead. The individuals who are to have a mark upon their forehead are described, beginning in verse 4, the Eternal said, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. Have you had a time this last few days to sigh and to cry for the abominations going on in our land? For the fact that the United States has endured now the worst riots, race riots, murder, mayhem, robbery, arson, shootings, muggings, beatings, rape in its entire history. Now, what I want to do is to illustrate a point by turning, first of all, I won't go back to 1 Kings, the third chapter, when Solomon, as the young son of David, who was to inherit his throne, prayed when God's servant came to him and said, Ask what you will of me. And Solomon got on his knees and he prayed for wisdom. He said, Behold, I'm a child. I know not how to go out or come in. How can I judge this, the great people of my father David? I need wisdom. And in a dream, God showed him that he had given him great wisdom. If we will turn to Proverbs, the eighth chapter, Proverbs 8, there are a couple of chapters here that personify wisdom. And Solomon was the wisest man of his day. Now, that didn't mean that Solomon was perfect, because when he was an older man, he certainly was not. Solomon made some unwise decisions in his lifetime, but God did give him wisdom and judgment and discretion. Beginning in the 8th chapter, verse 1, Solomon is personifying wisdom. He's making wisdom like the proverbial lady in the robes with the blindfold with the justice, you know, scales in her hand, or like the Statue of Liberty, except blind justice is depicted by a woman who is blind and the scales are there. Does not wisdom cry, and understanding put forth her voice? She stands in the top of high places. That is, she is obvious. She's right at the corner of a major intersection at a place up on the top of a hill. By the way in the places of the paths, she cries at the gates, at the entry of the city, at the coming in at the doors. Unto you, O men, I call, and my voice is to people, the sons of man, the human race. O you simple, understand wisdom, and you fools, be of an understanding heart. Hear, for I will speak of excellent things, and the opening of my lips shall be right things. For my mouth shall speak truth, and wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are in righteousness. There is nothing forward or perverse in them. They're all plain to him that understands, and right to them that find knowledge. Receive my instruction, and not silver, and knowledge rather than choice gold, because once you have knowledge and wisdom, you will have no problem providing for yourself. For wisdom is better than rubies, and all the things that may be desired are not to be compared to it. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence. 
and find out knowledge of witty inventions or of discretion. The fear of the eternal is to hate evil, pride, and arrogancy, and the evil way, and the froward mouth, screaming, raving, senseless invective, do I hate. Counsel is mine, and sound wisdom. I am understanding. I have strength. By me kings rule, and princes decree justice. By me princes rule, and nobles, even all the judges of the earth. I love them that love me, and those that seek me early shall find me. Riches and honor are with me, yea, durable riches and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, yea, than fine gold, and my revenue than choice silver. Many other of these beautiful principles are given throughout the eighth chapter. In verse 32 he says, Now therefore hearken unto me, O you children, for blessed are they that keep my ways, Hear instruction, and be wise, and refuse it not. Blessed is the man that hears me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at the posts of my doors. For whoso findeth me finds life, and shall obtain favor of the eternal. But he that sins against me, that is, abandons wisdom, in favor of stupidity, and jealousy, and rancor, hatred, prejudice, racism, vanity, ego, selfishness, he that sins against me wrongs his own soul. All they that hate me love death. In the next chapter, he continues in that same vein. Wisdom now has built her house. She's hewn out her seven pillars, killed her beast, mingled her wine, furnished her table, sent forth her maidens, cries to the highest place of the city. Whoever is simple, let him turn in hither. For him at once understanding, she says to him, Come, eat of my bread, and drink of the wine which I have mingled. Forsake the foolish and live and go in the way of understanding. Another beautiful chapter, and he said in verse 10, a favorite scripture that a lot of us know by heart, the fear of the eternal is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. Now, as we review all the events of the last several days, and in fact the last several months since the beating of Rodney King and the race riots that have now taken more than 40 lives in Los Angeles, Apparently, the damage is soaring up into the multi-billions of dollars. More than 4,000 are in jail. Thousands have been injured. Riots have erupted in New York, Omaha, Las Vegas, Los Angeles, up in Des Moines, Iowa, over in Atlanta, in dozens of cities all over the United States. And there is an awful lot of rhetoric in the air. There's an awful lot of interview, you know, being, interviews being conducted on national television. It is about time for some Solomonic wisdom, for some calm, dispassionate, unbiased, cool appraisal of all that has taken place. For after all, if we are who we say we are, and if on the last great day following the Feast of Tabernacles we are continually reminded that a great judgment day is coming, and reminded that Jesus said to him that overcometh will I give power over the nations, and they shall rule them with a rod of iron. If God is going to hand to you a rod of iron, would you have been there with those policemen beating Rodney King half to death? If you had known all that led up to it, had been in possession of all of the facts, and had decided to carry out what those police were doing that you and I saw endlessly over and over and over again on television. Now, in my attempt to remain dispassionate, I may inadvertently stimulate rage in the hearts of some of you. I don't intend to do that, so hear me out to the end of what I have to say and do not leap to any conclusions before I've had an opportunity to cover a subject which may in fact require a very great deal of explanation and two sides to an issue before all of your viscera begins to get excited and the blood rushes to your head and your adrenal gland pumps in a little bit of anger and you forget everything we've read about Solomonic wisdom. Let's hear a litany of sin and crime and wrong, just like pouring poison into poison. One wrong atop another wrong atop another wrong atop another wrong, which has resulted in poor innocent victims being pulled out of their automobiles and trucks and murdered when they had nothing to do with what went on 
on that fateful night months ago when Rodney King was beaten. First of all, Rodney King, a felon, a user of PCP, led the police on a 114-mile chase through neighborhoods. He was wrong. He was breaking the law. He was using drugs. He had turned his automobile into a lethal weapon, which if he had run into a school bus or a family of eight, could have literally obliterated several lives, including those riding with him, a couple of other fellows in the car. That was one cup of poison. That was sin. It was crime. It was wrong. It was wrong to speed away and try to evade the police instead of pulling over when they tried to do so with their red lights and sirens. It was wrong to do what he allegedly did when the first person on the scene, who was a female highway patrol officer, for him to pull down his pants, bare his bottom, making obscene gestures and hurling obscene epithets in her direction. It was wrong for him, even though today he says he did not resist arrest, to do so and no, more than 21 officers were eventually present, all of whom said that he resisted arrest, so you can believe whoever you wish on that event. Rodney King, I say, was wrong. Under the influence of angel's dust, you're not really too terribly responsible for what you do. So after he was being arrested and was thrown to the ground, he had four big men on him, and he had the power of the man in whom the demons entered when the seven sons of Onseva all ended up absolutely naked and bloody, and one man had almost superhuman power. This man was on the ground with four officers on him and had the power to throw all four of them off of him. And you and I come in at the very end of the matter at a home videotape that was taken that lasted only a few seconds, which they've timed very carefully, in which we witnessed in, I think, something like 83 seconds, 53 different blows of the baton in all parts of this man's body. So we see the end of a very ugly, wretched, criminal series of happenings or events. The police. The police were absolutely wrong to continue that beating with that man lying on the ground. But they had lost it. Now we can justify Rodney. He'd lost it. He was out of it. He was on PCP. Let's give a contrast, a little Solomonic wisdom here. There's a young man in black, a uh, black man in Watts, and there's a young police officer. The young black man dropped out of school. The young black man's mother is on welfare, maybe goes down to the post office to get her food stamps, and he has a lot of time on his hands. The police officer finished school, maybe went to college. Maybe the police officer is black in this case. He doesn't have to be any one particular color, but because this was a, quote, race riot, we've got to deal with it accurately, dispassionately, honestly, and in a godly fashion. You and I are adults who on one occasion or another in our lives have no doubt lost our temper. I'm not looking at a single face, white or black, brown or red, yellow or blue or polka dotted or splotched or purple, who has not at one time or another, from the time we were little babies and we first threw our first tantrum, lost it. Just flat lost your temper. Sometimes when husbands and wives get into it and lose their tempers, it has been known that one or the other of them will just pick up something that otherwise is quite precious to them, like a lamp or a vase or a piece of bric-a-brac, and throw it through a window. They just lose it, and they get to the point to where they just got to destroy something. They're just going to break something because they've lost it. They have momentarily forgotten all wisdom, discretion, knowledge, caution, all the wonderful Christian principles, and they have lost their temper. Now, it's possible for me to make you lose your temper. I won't do it because I don't want to suffer the consequences. But it's possible. As the Bible says, surely the forcing of wrath bringeth strife, and surely the wringing of the nose gets blood. So you can walk up to somebody and hit him just enough times because you're not Christ and you're not advanced as far as Christ and I'm not either. Ring his nose enough times, spit in his face enough times, gig him with your thumb, knee him in the groin, kick him in the shin, step on his feet, slap his face, hurl epithets about his ancestry enough times that eventually he will lose it. Now the trouble with that is that if the person you cause to lose it is armed with a pistol and a baton, you might get more than you bargained for. Because policemen, even though they wear a blue garment and a badge, 
do not have the wisdom of Solomon, and they don't have the patience of Job, and they don't have the love and mercy of Jesus Christ. Because after all, all of us wear a veneer. Our physical veneer happens to be our clothing, my suit and my tie. The other veneer is our behavior generally throughout our workaday week and in our lives as we move about in society and in our families and we interface and interrelate one to another in human physical relationships. That's our veneer. Peel off that veneer and the real person is somewhere in underneath there, the real you that you know and understand. The veneer in some cases is very, very thin between lawful behavior, civilized behavior, the behavior of decorum, of patience, of understanding, of generosity, and all the wonderful values of Christianity, and the behavior that is brutal, that is thuggish, that is crass, that is literally criminal and violent. And sometimes that veneer is so thin that it is only kept there by the threat of retaliation, or it would burst out and it would just be obvious that that veneer is gone and the real rapacious characteristic of the individual is there on display all the time. It's a fundamental principle of child-rearing. Children left to themselves will not even have a civilized veneer. A little tiny baby is wholly and totally uncivilized. It isn't civilized to do the things they do lying there in their diapers. We all know that without any attempt to be scatological about it. I'm saying that if children are not housebroken, they are unacceptable in society. Having made that point, let me go on. It was wrong for those police who now had lost it, lost their temper, shed the veneer, and didn't even resemble police with their college education and their police academy background and the oath they swore to uphold the law to continue beating that man when he was on the ground. And I don't care who says what to me, I saw that stupid video until I was sick of looking at it. And I've seen it another 20 times since the riots began. Rodney King wasn't beaten once. He was beaten 270 million times by the time they get through looking at that thing. Now, I'm coming to another wrong, which I think you will agree with me. It was wrong of those officers. They committed a sin. They committed a crime. And I believe that crime should not go unpunished, no matter what that all-white jury said. The man who happened along the scene and took the home video, what is the wisdom of Solomon? Let's understand his motives. Let's ask what he was after. How would you judge? What would you have done? If you had been there with your video camera, you had happened on the scene, you'd taken those films. If his motive was justice, you would think he would have taken that thing, copied it, put it in a safety deposit vault somewhere, and gone straight to the police commission, the police department, the chief of police, the mayor's office, gone to whoever, whatever uh, agency that he needed to, and to say, look, this cannot be tolerated unless you make this right, unless justice is served, unless these men are punished, brought to trial, fired, whatever, I go public with this tape. If his motive had been justice, he would have done that. But that wasn't his motive. Oh, man, have I got me a videotape. Wow, this is dynamite. I wonder what ABC will outbid CBS for it. And so greed enters in, and this civilian decides, I'm going to make me a pile. And he goes straight to the media. Wrong. Not a little cup of poison. Another wrong was committed. Media gets into the act. Wrong straight across the board. I have almost unmitigated contempt for the American media. Almost unmitigated. I've dealt with them for over 38 years. I've had reporters twist my words. I've had them lie. I've had them exaggerate and minimize. I've had them come with a little pad about that big when I had a 20-year background of radio and television broadcasting, having never heard one broadcast and presumed to write a story on me, my life, and my background for their newspaper, and not even with a tape recorder, which I cheerfully would have spoken into if he'd had it. I've seen it time and time again. Like Gertrude uh, McManahan, uh, witness to the robbery the other day, uh, you know, the thug escaped after brutally beating a woman and murdering two children. Gertrude, who lives at 2336 Springdale Road, uh, you know, I just cannot believe some of the stories that come in the media time and time and time again. I've seen them identify a person who 
as they say, fingers or identifies a person who has perpetrated a crime when you know that criminal is going to come looking for her and the media has practically sealed her fate and assured that she's going to be killed. The same thing happens in rape cases. Anymore on television, if they're going to portray something, they're going to illustrate something. Health Week is not illustrated by a ruby-cheeked little four-year-old girl eating an apple. It's illustrated by a needle going in somebody's vein. When it's Health Week on CNN, it isn't illustrated by a vegetable salad. It's illustrated by an open-heart surgery. I get to see the knife and the heart beating away there and the blood all over the place. That's the media today, and I have almost totally unmitigated contempt for them. Because justice, mercy, truth, honesty, a lot of them hide behind that. They claim that's what they want. I remember telling my wife, when we got absolutely sick seeing that Rodney King beating, I said, how many times are they going to put that in front of my face? I said, they're going to bring about race riots in this country if they don't stop. So there was no sense of responsibility. They just kept grinding it in people's faces. They must have shown me that thing 40 times in three days when it first occurred. Morning, noon, and night, they were showing it over and over and over again. The media was wrong, wrong, wrong. Now, what they were doing was hamstringing the justice system. By doing that, and especially in L.A., where it was shown even more than it was on national media, if that's possible, that meant that the judges and the lawyers, both defense and prosecuting, that got into the act would be hard put indeed to impanel any kind of a jury who was not already inflamed with passion one way or the other because of what they'd seen on that tape. So the media committed another wrong. Now the judicial system enters into it, and we have a whole series of wrongs. Whichever judge it was, whichever attorneys who got together with the judge to decide upon a change of venue and move that trial to Simi Valley up past Sunland and Tohunga over a little mountain up towards Saugus, north of Los Angeles, into virtually an all-white community, which is populated by large numbers of the Los Angeles Police Department, and that is known, and then impaneled an all-white jury. We're just pouring more cups of poison onto an already poisonous situation. Now, in all honesty, they tried to impanel several blacks. And the blacks were already uh, pretty much polarized, and for that various reasons, uh, the trial, by the way, and the jury selection was going on live for literally weeks and weeks in Los Angeles. One channel in particular covered every bit of it. They had the cameras going, and there were tens of thousands of people in Los Angeles who watched every minute of those proceedings. There was a video camera in that courtroom from the beginning of the selection of the jury. So it was a public affair from the word go. That in itself may have been wrong. The jury then heard a lot of things we didn't hear. But a lot of whites jumped on the bandwagon and said, that is justification for that last few segments of the tape that we saw. I don't believe that myself, because I think nothing justifies what we saw. Understand it? They asked me to understand why the blacks are burning down segments of Los Angeles. I don't understand that. I understand their rage. I don't understand them burning. I understand their anger. I don't understand them killing. I understand their, their, their frustration. I don't understand them burning down their own neighborhood. There's a difference. So the media managed to pretty much hamstring the entire judicial system and by the time the jury heard all the things that led up to it and heard these white officers going through a whole litany of circumstances of dealing with other people who had been violent and about the PCP and the events that took place prior to that and all the rotten, filthy language and all the struggle and all the violence and worried about somebody grabbing their gun, they managed, listen please, brethren and sisters, they managed to set a mood, an atmosphere, gradually began to prevail in that courtroom. And it was an atmosphere that said, in essence, a little voice in the back of people's mind, that these blacks over here tend to be violent. They tend to be criminal. They tend to resist arrest. They tend to use drugs. There's a lot of crime out here. A lot of it's black. Don't think for one minute some of that wasn't going around in the backs of a lot of white minds. Because I believe that the wisdom of Solomon 
and the dispassionate, cool appraisal of those circumstances dictates that that would have been one of the many other underlying motives and presuppositions of that all-white jury. Now they announce the acquittal, and the media makes another mistake. They do not qualify immediately, or even before announcing the acquittal, they don't qualify the fact that the man is yet under indictment for another trial. They don't talk about a federal investigation. They don't talk about an appellate process is going to put these guys back on the hot seat in an additional trial pretty soon. They don't talk about that at all. They just leave it hanging. And all that happens is there is a jury that has said these men are not guilty. Now we have a riot. And within minutes or hours, tens of thousands, and it gradually grows, of young black people, mostly young, take to the streets and begin smashing store windows, carrying out VCRs, and videos, and radios, and everything they can get their hands on, and uh, absolutely destroying an entire neighborhood, burning businesses, shooting people, beating people, and so on. The rioters were wrong, wrong, wrong. Because a friend of mine is beaten by a group of other people, I got a neighbor across the street, his name is Harvey, and because I lose my cool and I just decide I am just frantic with anger, what will I do, go over and burn down Harvey's house? Somebody makes me mad, so I'll burn my neighbor's house down. Somebody makes me furious, my wife trades at Brookshire's, that's our store we trade at, so I'll go burn Brookshire's. Does that make any sense at all? Does it make any sense to burn down my own neighborhood when I live in a neighborhood that had just gradually been trying to get on its feet all the way from 1965 with people who have been trying to invest in a, an otherwise impoverished ghetto-like area to bring it back up to some sort of economic equilibrium, and they did so very timorously. And I've driven through it time and time again, right down Firestone Boulevard, right in the heart of Watts, Martin Luther King Boulevard, right in the heart of Watts, in southwest Los Angeles. I've been there many a time. Go by it right in the freeway. It's right off the edge of the freeway, the Harbor Freeway, going down toward the Coliseum. And you can go through those neighborhoods down there, and it looks like, and I'm not talking about today, I'm talking about months ago, years ago. It looks like an area under siege. Every store window has big iron bars. Every storefront is absolutely obliterated. You, in a lot of cases, can't even tell what original color it was with these spray cans of graffiti. And hardly one of those words, whatever they are, is a, is a word. The kids that do it don't even know how to make an English letter. It's just a lot of signs and symbolism. It isn't really graffiti because you can't read it. You're not even reading obscene words or any other kind of words. It's just kind of symbols that they think looks like a letter. And an awful lot of them have gone out there and just absolutely trashed their own neighborhood. The rioters are without excuse because you are in a rage to go beat an innocent person, kill an innocent person, burn somebody's store, absolutely wrong, adding poison to poison. Now, how do you evaluate the fact that many of these young blacks paid most of their attention to the Korean community? Because the Korean community in Los Angeles it has been coming under an awful lot of persecution on the part of other ethnic minorities, and there's been an awful lot of tension. And so they were out primarily beating and destroying Korean residences and businesses and so on. It makes no sense whatsoever that if a man is brutally beaten, and I don't even know that man, I go kill an innocent party. It makes no sense whatsoever if I see a man being brutally beaten and I don't even know him, that I go and burn down my local supermarket. Somebody told me that Jack Kemp had said that he, maybe it was just last night on Larry King Live, that he advocated people who would go into a ghetto and build a business should be exempt from capital gains tax. And I said, now that's one of the best ideas I've ever heard of. That, that is something that makes some sense. Otherwise, how do you think anybody is ever going to go back in there? You think that you and I, a bunch of us, could get together and maybe pool our resources and say, what do you say we go start a supermarket in Watts? I mean, what are your chances? Of, what do you think your insurance premiums are going to be? Now, here are people that are absolutely senselessly doing this. And we're coming to the rest of the story in a minute. So just hang on if you're getting a little angry with me. There is no excuse. Mayor Tom Bradley used the words that the beating of Rodney King was just about like saying that, that genocide against young blacks had begun. 
That's one of the most stupid, irresponsible statements I've ever heard a black leader make. And I know that man. I've had lunches with him. We've talked. I've interviewed him. He's been in my office. I knew him when he was police chief, and I knew him after he was mayor. And I do not agree with that statement. It is an irresponsible statement beyond my comprehension to use the term genocide over a brutal beating when the man is completely recovered. I'm not making light of that beating. It was brutal. It was completely against the law. The police had lost their temper, and they definitely should be prosecuted and pay full measure. No way can I justify that beating. Genocide? Then I saw a black pastor the other day interviewed down in Atlanta, and he was screaming all kinds of epithets about slavery. And he's saying, I would rather be in my grave, dead in my grave, than live in slavery. And all of them were cheering and yelling, slavery? Now, come on. This kind of rhetoric, this kind of violent, absolute, hyper-superlative exaggeration is ridiculous, and that's part of the problem. No one is using Solomonic wisdom. Nobody's dealing with a cool head. Nobody is looking objectively and dispassionately at the law and at human behavior and seeking truth and seeking discretion and judgment and mercy and what God would have. They just blow their stack and make all of these stupid statements. Do you know, can you find, in Watts or anywhere else, a single young black boy who has been deliberately deprived or denied an education? And I'll answer the question for you. No, you can't. You can't find them. They're not there. That education is there. It's like wisdom, crying at the high place. And they're all those schools, and they're crying, come in here and learn and get an education. The welfare rolls in the United States, the incredible tax burden upon people who are otherwise not asked to do anything, I disagree with 100%. Would I deny them those checks? No. I would simply demand that something be done in return. And maybe just like FDR and his three C's, the Civilian whatever Construction Corps, and the WPA that we used to say meant we put her around, it was a, actually a public works administration during World War II, was not a bad idea. There are an awful lot of filthy old parking lots. There are an awful lot of old sidewalks with grass growing up. There are an awful lot of beer cans and bottles lying along the roads and highways. An awful lot of graffiti on an awful lot of buildings. And an awful lot of people on welfare who could do at least a few hours work every single day and then go get that welfare check with a sense of pride and a sense of something accomplished instead of just getting it handed to them. Now, as some sort of mute, ridiculous justice to show you the justice is blind, the people who had nothing to do with a lot of it, and I'm coming to that, so hang on, don't get angry with me, coming to that, were lined up four abreast, one mile long, waiting to get to the post office because the postal service was completely broken down because they desperately needed the welfare checks. And they were standing in line crying because one of them said, What good is it going to do me to get my check? I can't go to the store and buy anything. One woman is crying, What good is it going to do me to get my check? I can't even buy gas for my car. They burnt the service station down. She was crying. Now I've come to another point. Who didn't riot? Millions of American blacks did not riot. None of the black members of this church rioted. Black ministers didn't riot. The mothers of most of those black kids didn't riot. Most of their fathers didn't riot. The vast majority of blacks in this country didn't riot. But a few did. And if whites riot, they're white rioters. And if orientals riot, they're oriental rioters. And if blacks riot, they're black rioters. The skin color doesn't make a bit of difference. A criminal is a criminal is a criminal. You commit a crime, doesn't matter what color you are, you're immediately a criminal. They didn't riot. Church-going, professing Christian blacks did not riot. Many tried to stop it, some at risk and actual loss of their lives. Many tried to pitch in and help, and they're doing it while we're sitting here right now today. There are thousands of blacks, Koreans, whites, Chicanos on the streets of Watts in Los Angeles with brooms, shovels, dustpans, mops, buckets, out there right this minute, all this beautiful sunny Saturday in Los Angeles, trying to clean up that wretched mess of hundreds upon hundreds of stores, whole square blocks that look like a war zone, looks like part of Basra or Baghdad, looks like Beirut, 
looks like Berlin in 1945. It's an absolute shambles. And the community is pitching in to try to do something about it, and you have to applaud that. So, you see, you might have thought that I was kind of taking a particular bent here or a particular approach that was sort of putting blanket blame. Never. I've never done that. I never will. So many tried to stop it. Many helped beaten whites. We heard that one case that President Bush told us about. If you caught the speech, you certainly should have if you're watching, and we're supposed to watch. Uh, last night, when he told about some of the blacks who had helped save this white truck driver's life when his eyes were beaten completely shut, and a black woman got in a cab with him and said, I'll be your eyes and help you get out of here. And it's very moving to hear that that has happened. Now many of them are pitching in to try to clean up this wretched mess. Officials just seem not to understand how to handle it. They seem to make wrong statements, understanding and justifying this rioting. But I can understand the rage. I can understand the frustration. But I don't understand why, 20 minutes after Mrs. Molly Antion left one of the most beautiful grocery stores I've ever been in, 20 great big black young men walked in and began emptying the shelves and shoving people aside and just taking what they wanted. I don't understand how you can justify a merciless beating and turn around and say, now I'm going to go steal. And as the cameras and the microphone were put in front of one young man wheeling in a stolen shopping cart, a VCR, I mean a television set out of a store, they asked him, is this right? Is what you're doing right? Yeah, it's right. There's nothing wrong with it. That was his answer. So you see, once you've lost it, once judgment is gone, once there is no, no rational thought, no dispassionate cool appraisal, no wisdom, no mercy, no godliness, no standard of what is right or what is wrong, people make statements that are so absolutely foolish it's just beyond your ability to believe. Let's look at Ezekiel 7 and verse 33. I'm sorry. Verse 23, Ezekiel 7 and verse 23. I think all of us know, and we've talked about it time and again, the times in which we are living. But this certainly does highlight, and it's not my purpose to instill a lot of fear. It is certainly not my purpose to instill a lot of xenophobia. By and large, you would be safer in an American black community than you would be in a lot of other areas of the world I could tell you about, including walking the streets of Baghdad. There are a lot of places in this world you wouldn't want to go. So we need not overreact. We need not react with fear or anything of the kind. In Ezekiel, the seventh chapter, in verse 23, make a chain, Ezekiel is told, for the land is full of bloody crimes and the city is full of violence. Now, that is a description, certainly, of what we've been seeing in the last few days. He is told to make a chain like linking something together, because God's Word talks about how blood touches blood. In other words, one crime perpetrates or precipitates another crime, and violence follows violence or triggers violence, and there is no end to it. So the chain is showing the endlessness. You can think of serial murders. You can think of attack and then retaliation and so on. Make a chain, for the land is full of bloody crimes, and the city is full of violence. To illustrate, a young white man just yesterday in Northern California holds an entire school hostage for hours. He was furious because he flunked a course. He was mad at the teacher and mad at the school. And so he took a rifle in there and murdered several students and murdered a teacher. He's white. He's a rotten, filthy, heartless, perverted, wretched white murderer that ought to be stood up in front of a firing squad and shot no later than tomorrow, in my opinion. So I don't care what color they are. It had nothing to do with Rodney King. He didn't go take these kids hostage. It showed their mothers weeping. How would you feel if your child was inside a school, about 80 of them, and this man was in there with a rifle holding your child hostage? That's your daughter, your son in there. How would you feel? What do those parents go through while that man was in there with that gun? And what about the ones the parents of the kids he shot, and the husband and the children of the teacher that he shot. It had nothing to do with Rodney King. Make a chain. The land is full of bloody crimes, and the city is full of violence. 
wherefore I will. Now, God is going to punish this country. I will bring the worst of the heathen, the most low-life, degenerate, heartless, merciless people that God can find, and they shall possess their houses. I will make the pomp of the strong to cease, and their holy places shall be defiled. Destruction comes, and they shall seek peace, and there shall be none. Have you thought about the international consequences of what is going on in this country? Let's touch upon that. Only a few weeks ago, I saw the second of a very major network documentary on neo-Nazism in Germany, including an interview with a xenophobic young racist who ought to be stood up against the wall and shot to absolutely annihilate that kind of vermin from the world, because his mind is so absolutely twisted and perverted that he was sitting there justifying beating Orientals to death and kicking their lifeless bodies off passing buses in Germany, because his belief is that the Germans are a superior race. He is a devout admirer of Adolf Hitler. He is a neo-Nazi. He hates the Jews. He hates the Slavs. He hates the Poles. He hates the blacks. He hates the Orientals. He hates everybody except Nordic, blonde, white Germans. And he is at the head of a young bunch of skinheads, neo-Nazis, who riot, march along, and demonstrate during Hitler's birthday, who have their meetings with all the flags and the swastikas and the Nazi regalia and pins and badges and uniforms and so on. Now, what do you think this wretched race riot in this country says to those people over there? Why, it just pours gasoline on their racist fires. It says if you want proof that a multiracial society can't work, if you want proof about what is eventually going to happen here in Germany if we don't stop these Auslanders from coming in here, if we don't stop these people coming in from all these inferior races and so on. And that's what these xenophobic white supremacists, Nazis and racists in Germany are going to say. What do you think all the Arabs in the Arab countries, including Saddam Hussein, who watches CNN, are saying? Do you think there is, now let me ask you this, and, and you know the answer before I ask you, do you think there was one of those young men smashing store windows and putting a VCR in somebody's trunk who thought to himself, what will our enemies abroad think about what I'm doing? What will be the impression of enemies abroad about America? You and I know that not one of them ever came up with the remotest thought in the back of their mind about that consequence. So already Francois Mitterrand is in the act. And he's making statements about this pitiful society and the deep social problems of the United States. Here's America, the land of opportunity, the great superpower that went over there and took care of Saddam Hussein, or did we? Took care of the communists in Grenada. Took care of this evil dictator and drug runner down in Panama. And look at our society. We're trying to keep peace all over the world. We're trying to send our young men and women tens of thousands of miles in all directions to put down other dictators because of what? Because of their violation of people's civil rights. Because of their brutal occupation of helpless civilians and other people. Because of riot. Because of looting of a little nation called Kuwait. And we can't have peace inside our own country. We don't know how to live together in peace. In Isaiah, the 59th chapter, and this, of course, is the classic chapter about a lot of this that I have quoted time and time again, because it is an indictment of the human race itself and of all of our sins in this country. God says that his hand is not shortened, nor his ear heavy, that it cannot hear, but your sins, your iniquities, lawlessness have separated between you and your God, chapter 59, that he will not hear, for your hands are defiled with blood. There are murderers running around the city streets of Los Angeles today. Some of them, three, five, ten, twenty of them, murdered one victim. Some of them just pulled out a gun, walked up somebody, and shot him. Others just beat or kicked a man to death. And no one will ever know who did it. And they have wiped their mouth and gone their way and said, He, anonymous, Never saw him before, but he was white, so he had it coming. You think God is not going to judge for this kind of thing? 
Your hands are defiled with blood, your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies, your tongue has muttered perverseness. None calls for justice. When I heard the Larry King show the other night, when they were interviewing one of those women jurors, and she was asked, do you think that the verdict had anything to do with the riots? Why no, why should it? That's got to be one of the dumbest human beings I have ever heard make a statement out of a human mouth. That woman denied that that verdict had any remote connection with that riot. Why, they were waiting, she said, to riot anyway, even if it had been guilty, apparently, she thought. You, I can't, I don't understand the mind lie. That's not a mind. It's utterly brainless. It isn't a mind at all. It's just a mouth speaking some kind of hideous prejudice. Might have, well, I had a trained parrot there making a statement like that. It can't be a human brain that came up with a statement like that. None calls for justice, nor any pleads for truth. They trust in vanity and speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. In verse 7, their feet run to evil. You know, back in the first chapter of the book of uh, Proverbs, it talks about how, my son, don't go with those that say, come, let us lie in wait privily, or let us shed innocent blood, and let's run, let's have this gang, let's go, you know, take care of some people, and so on. Let's beat him up after school. Don't go with them. Their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed innocent blood. Isn't that a terrible indictment? They didn't go after those police. They just picked some victim walking by, beat the man to death. Their thoughts are thoughts of lawlessness. Wasting and destruction are in their paths. The way of peace they know not, and there is no judgment in their goings. They have made them crooked paths. Whosoever goes therein shall not know peace. Therefore is judgment far from us. Now I'm going to flip back to the first chapter of Isaiah, because this is not just some isolated problem. It is not a black problem or a brown problem or a white problem, this problem of the violent loss of one's temper. Although there are causal factors that are societal in nature and racial in nature of prejudice and bias, to be sure, straight across the spectrum of American society, from government at its highest level to the sleaze factor during the Reagan administration back to the days of the infamous resignation of President Nixon, and the profanity and the obscene language on his tapes to burglary conducted and then covered up by the highest official in the land, to the Keatings of the world and the SNL scandals, to the insurance frauds, to white-collar crime that costs hundreds of billions of dollars every year, and the poor consumer and the poor taxpayer is the person who pays for every bit of this. It is across the entire spectrum to the various highest levels and the corridors of Congress. To the members of the House of Representatives who kite checks when you and I would go to jail if we did the same thing. There is no honesty, there is no integrity, there is no truth, there is no justice. You and I live in a criminal society with only the thinnest pretext, the little thin veneer on the exterior that says we are civilized. And when that veneer is pulled apart, when it breaks, when it's unwrapped, then the beast that is really there is immediately evident. In the first chapter of the book of Isaiah, Hear, O heavens, verse 2, and give ear, O earth, for the eternal has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. Profound statement all by itself. I imagine there were plenty of black mothers that were shedding buckets of tears the other day when their sons were out there at all hours of the night burning and looting and begging them not to go. Now, hear what I say very clearly. The vast majority of black people in the United States were against those riots. It isn't just a few. It's far too many. Tens of thousands rioted. That's for sure. But still, there's a far larger segment of them who wouldn't have done it and decried it, and many of whom tried to stop it. The, the ox knows his owner, and the ass his master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people doth not consider. Ah, sinful nation! a people burdened, laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children are corruptors, they have forsaken the eternal, they have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger, they are gone away backward. Why should you be stricken anymore? You will revolt more and more. 
the whole head, and I look at this as by analogy, Uncle Sam, from the head to the heart to the sole of the foot, there is no soundness in it but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. And if you think our cities don't look like wounds and bruises and putrefying sores, even before these latest riots, you can drive through the Bedford-Stuyvesant and the Haight-Ashbury's from Los Angeles to San Francisco, from Boston and New York to Atlanta to Dallas-Fort Worth. I can take you over into southwest Dallas and drive through neighborhoods. You will be absolutely appalled. For that matter, I can take you to North Tyler and do the same thing. Every time I see a Chamber of Commerce magazine with beautiful full-color pictures of all the monuments and the azaleas, I want to go right around the corner with a black-and-white camera and take a picture of all the trash and the ghettos and the squalid conditions in which people only five blocks away are living. That was true within five or six blocks of Ambassador College in Pasadena. Only five or six blocks downtown were triple X-rated uh, peep shows and, and pornographic stores right in that neighborhood. So from the sole of the foot to the head, there is no soundness in it but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed because the leadership, in this sense by analogy, who ought to be the doctors or the physicians, and they ought to be preaching and teaching honesty and integrity and truth, and the values of godliness. They have not been closed, nor bound up, nor mollified with ointment. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your land, strangers devoured in your presence. It is desolate as overthrown by strangers. In 1 Corinthians 14.33, I won't turn to that, it says, God is not the author of confusion. Satan the devil is. Satan is the author of violence, of frenzied hatred, of murder and of riot. Satan and his demons love to dance and chirp and chortle and cavort while the buildings are burning and the windows are breaking and people are being beaten and stabbed and shot to death. They love the destruction of human life. And any time a human being is overcome by that kind of rage, he opens up his mind to a demon and to satanic influence. You and I cannot understand taking a little baby kitty cat that big and taking that poor little thing and banging its head against a rock, can we? We cringe at even thinking about it. Putting it in a, in a pond and put a board on top of it and just walk back and forth and drown the little thing. You can't stand it. You can't think of it. Well, how do you think human beings justify killing an innocent victim they never saw before in their lives? Now, there are going to be white retaliations, if there haven't been already. There's been entirely too much of that. White gangs in cities in the Northeast, in Boston and elsewhere, and on university campuses have gone around, formed gangs. There are plenty of neo-Nazis and skinheads in the United States. I don't think all the violence is over, and I don't think the worst of the race riots is over. I don't think the worst has even begun. Many, many years ago, a book written by a man named Philip Wiley depicted in some of the most graphic language imaginable in novel form what might happen in the United States in the event of nuclear war. When all of a sudden we learn that Los Angeles, New York, and Chicago do not exist, that there are booming, towering nuclear clouds soaring into the upper stratosphere, bearing the charred remnants of thousands of human beings, when the entire social infrastructure comes apart, and when he described frenzied, rampaging mobs going back and forth across the countryside, shooting, looting, raping, burning, killing, taking by force at gunpoint the dwindling means of survival from their own neighbors. Because when the supermarkets are gutted and burnt, the only new source of food is your neighbor's freezer and refrigerator. When you drive by Brookshire's next time, and I've talked about it before, take a look at the big chain-link fence with the military-like barbed wire and the gun ports in the little brick building sitting out near the edge of the wire. There are tunnels underneath that lead directly to the main buildings. Why do you suppose a man, a family, with a huge food warehouse in Tyler, Texas, would so design his property, that it looks like a military installation with pillboxes so that automatic rifles can be fired from behind gun ports. Something to think about, isn't it? Something to think about. If you doubt that we live in the last days, 
that we live in a time where the United States is fragmenting, where the very tapestry of our society is wearing thin, where it's coming apart at the seams, and where that thin blue line out there is not able to protect you. You'd better think again. There were people there. I saw one young black man arguing with a Chicano security guard about the destruction of the young black man's property on television. He said, why don't you do something? You're the security guard. The security guard, man, we can't do nothing. What can we do? He's wearing a gun, but a whole group of youngsters were savagely destroying the business. No, they knew the police were helpless. They knew that they simply had the upper hand. They knew they couldn't be stopped. They knew that the fire departments couldn't even do anything. And the first night, they had to just say, let it burn, because the firemen were not going to go in there and be shot by sniper fire. We live in a time of the end. We live in the end of an age. We live in a time where God says in Second Timothy, the third chapter, that surely these times were going to come where men will be guilty of this incredible amount of selfishness and of vanity, of every evil aspect of human nature that is possible to think about. He talked about perilous times coming, and he described it to a T. Lovers of their own selves. And that pretty much says it all. No feeling of compassion, no feeling of understanding, no wisdom, no mercy, no love. No outgoing concern. Just what I want. I want to satisfy my hatred. I want to satisfy my poverty. I want to take what I don't have. Lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents. And this is an age, of course, of that. And I've been screaming about that since I was 25 and did my very first television program on the subject of juvenile crime and violence. Disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of anyone who would be good, who would have the values of right from wrong, traitors, heady, that is headstrong and self-willed, High-minded, oh yeah, the neo-Nazi that was interviewed, he was just proud to say that he hated the Jews. He wasn't filled with shame and remorse, but high-minded. Lovers of pleasures, and a lot of them are homosexuals and deviates. They were in Hitler's government. By the way, they, a good note, they arrested that young Austrian neo-Nazi. They found that he was guilty of actually, uh, it's a crime to be a Nazi or a, neo, a uh, national socialist in the nation of Austria. It probably won't be for very long. But not long after that interview on one of the major TV channels in this country, they put that man in jail. Whether he'll stay there, or whether he'll be there long enough to write another Mein Kampf and then come out and try to take over the government, I don't know. But at least if it's a facade, if it's merely covering it up, if it's doing something to appeal to the foreign press, I don't know. But for the moment, they arrested him. Lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. It is a sad time for the United States of America. But I think a time when God's church needs, first of all, to be aware of the fact that many of our brethren live out there, that some of the converted people in God's church, both the parent church and the Church of God International, may well live in the Watts region, to be thinking about them, to be thinking about our other brethren in troubled areas who could be the victims of this kind of nonsense that is going on, to realize how close it is to home. There are cities all across America today where you, as a white person on the one hand or a black person on the other, could go into certain parts of the community and be in deadly jeopardy of your life just for being there. And we need to understand that. We need to be alert. We need to be watching. We need to be praying always. And we need to remember that the ones upon whom that angelic messenger is making a mark are people who are involved. They watch, they see what's happening on television, and they have a response. They feel something. Something wells up inside. How many of you, I'm not asking you to raise your hands, instead of acting with the balance, with the Solomonic wisdom, with the understanding, with the dispassionate objectivity, with wisdom, reacted instead with the taint of racism? anger, hatred. How did you react when you got the news? 
Were you able to back off and use all these qualities I'm talking about and see poison added to poison to poison to poison which erupted in the situation and to view it as God views it or did you view it as a result of the color of your skin? We need to think about that because God's messenger is putting a mark on the foreheads of those that sigh and cry for the abominations going on all around us.